Hey everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And welcome to The Needle Drop with Anthony Fantano, a weekly podcast where we round up all our reviews and some thought pieces as well. In this week's episode, we are going to be giving you reviews of the new Blood Orange album, the new Interpol album, the new OC's record, and one of my favorite hip-hop records of the year from The Hermit and The Recluse, a new hip-hop project from Brownsville's own Ka. We're also going to be hitting you with a track review of the new 21 Pilots Cut My Blood, also a thought piece on this new wave of emo rap, and a little think piece, a letter from a fan response about anonymity in music. Enjoy the episode, guys. Lay back, chill out, and uh, get get your brain wrapped around all of these reviews, thoughts, rants, and critiques. Here we go. Bam! bam, bam, bam. And it's time for a review of the new Blood Orange album, Negro Swan. This is the fourth album from songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist Devante Hines, aka Blood Orange. This is a pretty exciting time in Dev's career after hitting some pretty personal lows in the first half of this decade. His music has only gotten more ambitious, and his influence as a songwriter and a producer can be felt in more legs of the music industry, as he can be heard writing and working with the likes of Solange Knowles and Sky Ferreira, even the fantastic Carly Rae Jepsen, and performing with the likes of Philip Glass. And he has been growing the Blood Orange name, too, with albums that have shown improvements on all musical fronts, like his last full-length LP, Freetown Sound. And even though I wasn't in love with this LP, it did sound like Dev was elevating his usually airy and sensual blend of synth-funk and contemporary R&B and pop, with better instrumentation, less overbearing reverb, more tangible songs, and even social commentary. And that growth continues onto this new record over here, which I, I think in a lot of ways feels like Freetown sound thematically and aesthetically. But in comparison with that previous record, I think Swan is a sweeter, a bolder, a prettier record. It's more instrumentally lush and has some pretty impressive guest performances too. Hines' songwriting across this record, though, is still pretty loose. It's very vibey, which is partially what made Freetown sound so underwhelming for me at points. It was very blissful, but didn't have a whole lot of impact or strong song structures. And even though the bulk of the material on this new album is pretty light on the ears, it is pretty euphoric, I will say that instrumentally and compositionally, there are a lot more highlights, a lot more bold standout moments. So even if many of the songs on this record are kind of short and aren't necessarily plugged into these very well-regulated and tight pop structures. You still do have tracks on this thing like Saint, which features some very bright and emotive lead vocals in a sensual R&B style. Kinda sounds like a throwback to the 80s. There are also some echo-drenched sax leads on this thing too, as well as a supremely catchy and tremendous vocal finish with lots of harmonies, a very nice refrain. There's also the over-the-top lead vocals and the gospel melodies on the track Holy Will, which in some respects I kind of read as a doing too much, which is a kind of a, 
a theme, a phrase that comes up on the album. But I do like the odd and stripped back instrumentals, some of the weird background vocal placement too. It feels like I'm listening to art gospel or deconstructed gospel. Also the rich grand piano chords, the gorgeous lead vocals that kick off the first leg of the song Hope. Also a stunningly beautiful moment on the album. Don't get it twisted. Even though this record is pretty dreamy aesthetically for a majority of its runtime, uh, that doesn't mean it necessarily seeks to put you to sleep or that it's kind of uh, hiding details in the haze and the reverb and the echo. It's certainly not. Even the song Jewelry, which is easily one of the dreamiest tracks here, has some moody rap verses, some fantastic vocal harmonies, and some jazzy sax passages that all stand out really nicely. Devante does give listeners a lot to chew over and think about instrumentally on the album. It's a pretty engaging record. But simultaneously, it's very chill. It's very laid back. A lot of the songs on this thing kind of bleed into one another. As particular runs of of tracks on this record feel almost like chapters in a book. This is something I had a bit of an issue with on Freetown Sound, but I would say what Swan does so much better than that album is that it's not like I'm listening to a mere motif of a song and then it disappears into the ether and goes away. I think a lot of the short and very fluid tracks on this album reinforce each other really well as a holistic experience. I think tracks one through five are a pretty key example of that. Just before the track six where transgender activist and TV host Janet Mock can be heard engaging in, a, in an interview clip where she is talking about her own definition of family, it's a beautiful moment and sentiment on the album that plays right in to the next track, Charcoal Baby, thematically. A song all about wanting to feel accepted, not wanting to be the odd one out, which is a pretty key message for the entire album. Whether it be finding comfort in your own skin or finding a place or people that allow you to be yourself, be that best version of you that you can be, and the truest version of yourself that you can be. It's a pretty empowering message, which is obviously geared directly toward people of color and members of the LGBTQ community, reminding them to be unafraid to express themselves and, and owe it to themselves to be themselves, which is a nice thought. There are also lots of beautiful sounds throughout this entire record, but don't go into this album assuming it's just going to be one big attempt to blow smoke up the asses of the people that Devante intends to contact with this music. Because as pretty as a lot of the songs and instrumentation on this album are, there is a very haunting sense of isolation on this album too. There's also a pretty clear sense of fear when it comes to the current state of culture as well. I think there's some smart philosophical sloganeering on the album here and there too, like on the track Nappy Wonder, feelings never had no ethics, feelings never have been ethics. I think it's pretty safe to say that once you dive into the messaging of a lot of the lyrics on this record, it is as thoughtful as it is beautiful. However, there are some moments here where it seems to kind of fall short on those fronts, uh, like the ASAP Rocky feature. Yeah, there's a rapped and sung ASAP Rocky feature right dab smack in the middle of the LP, which doesn't really add much to the album's sound, uh, nor its messaging. It just seems really out of place, and it's one of the most awkward appearances of any artist on the record. Really, the, the, mo the most awkward. No question. And still at this point, I do find some of the songs on this record to be a bit too impressionist with a kind of weak song structure and tune. I mean, sure, the aesthetic is nice, the vibe is nice, 
but maybe it doesn't connect to the surrounding tracks all that tightly. I don't get that same sense of reinforcement. So as a result, uh, some songs on this thing do just feel like these very underwhelming micro versions of songs. Like on Dagenham Dream, Holy Will, I have to give a nod to, unfortunately, and also this track toward the end of the record, Minetta Creek, which oddly enough reminded me of something Ariel Pink would do on an older record for some reason. There are a few weird performances and instrumental mixes on the album as well, but I took that as more of an interesting character trait because from what I understand, the songs on this album were all created and recorded under a variety of different circumstances, which leads to some very uniquely varied results uh, across the album track list and puts this album in a state that's kind of tough to describe. In one breath, Devontae Hines does a great job of making sure all of these tracks come together in a beautifully uniform and, again, holistic and, and blissful way. But stylistically and aesthetically, the album is really all over the place, too, as it just kind of sounds like a lot of these tracks came together in a very raw and a creative fashion. Just as Hines was literally in a series of different settings for a lot of these songs, I feel like I, as a listener, am being transported to different places with a lot of the tracks here. And the fact that they link and thread and fade into one another so nicely across the track listing uh, only adds to the excitement of the variety because it, it does feel connected. It does feel, uh, as I said before, very fluid. This is easily one of the prettiest, brightest, and enjoyable vibe albums, I guess you could say, that I've heard this year. It is gorgeous aesthetically and more compelling, in my opinion, than anything Hines has released up until this point. There are moments where I wish the songwriting was a bit more of a focus or that there were more tracks on this record that could be pulled out of the context of the album and be enjoyed merely by themselves, kind of in a single-type state, but th there's still very little material that I think you can do that with on this record, because I think the experience and the enjoyability of this project comes very much down to the larger, the more macro picture uh, than any kind of micro-type focus on a single track, a single song, a single moment. Because of that reinforcement, because of the way the tracks kind of build on top of each other, and again, what's so surprising and so fantastic about that is that so many of the songs on this thing, especially the moments where Hines is throwing interview clips in your face, that sort of thing, it, it feels kind of like a scrapbook of experiences. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Hopefully I've done what exactly this album is trying to achieve justice, uh, because there are a lot of great things about it, and uh, it certainly was an experience uh, that I loved going through this year. I'm feeling a strong 7 to a light 8 on this thing, Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Interpol album, Marauder. This is the latest full-length album from legendary indie and post-punk band, Interpol. The band's trajectory over the past 20 years has pretty much become a trope in popular music at this point. Band makes grand entrance into the music scene with a pretty much picture-perfect debut album, and then they sort of spend the rest of their careers living in the shadow of that album, never really quite being able to outdo it. Or 
really create anything that seems totally out of the purview of it. Whether it be the band trying to stick to their guns for a pretty formidable follow-up on their sophomore full-length LP, or bringing in a bunch of very syrupy, atmospheric, grand, extra lavish instrumentation on their self-titled record in 2010, and then going back to basics in a way on El Pintor a few years ago in 2014. And at this point on Marauder, Interpol still kind of sounds like they are at a loss for what to do. I was somewhat excited going into this album by the rough and wild performances I heard on teaser tracks like The Rover, even if the mixing and Paul Banks' yelpy vocals were a bit weird. It still seemed like the band were on the verge of something new and refreshing. But the exciting new direction I hoped Interpol would pull through with on this album is just not here. Nor would I call this album the mild return to form that Pintor was either. Instead, Marauder pretty much sounds like the same moody, driving post-punk that Interpol is known for, but presented with sloppier writing, production, and performances, there is an unnecessary amount of reverb on a lot of these tracks, to the point where the guitars, the vocals, are really just bleeding into one another in a very unlikable way. It's like they cancel each other out and create this bland sonic slop, and when the band manages to throw on a few extra layers of vocals or guitars, it just feels like I'm listening to really bad shoegaze. The sound, the tone, the timbre of this recording, it's just really dull and drab and gray, and the performances, the playing on this thing, they, they don't really help either. Like the twangy and repetitive desert rock guitar leads on the track Stay In Touch, they get very tedious, very fast, and the only thing that really distracts from them are the horrid swells of cymbals, Paul Banks' voice, and these weird wailing guitar leads that sound very sour. There are also some weird rhythm guitars in the second leg that do anything but emphasize the rhythm of the track. I hear the band making some attempts at trying some new stuff, doing something to shake things up in their typical sound, but usually it does not go over too well. Especially when Paul tries to switch up his vocal delivery, which in theory is not necessarily a bad thing, but why his instincts went toward, hey, let's just hang in my upper register and get really yelpy, like on the song Party's Over, which was such a slog to listen to, the track almost feels like a, a statement on the album itself, the party's over, please. And even when Interpol is just resting on their laurels and trying to pull off their usual shtick, it's really underwhelming. The chimey driving rhythm guitars that Interpol are usually known for, like on the track Surveillance, are really, really sloppy and come together in a pretty messy fashion, which is sort of a shame because it sounds like at the core of the track, we have a very good song here. As Paul's singing on the verses kills it, and his haunting demeanor on the hook is, is fantastic. His forlorn croons are really despondent. Vocally, I think it is one of the more powerful moments on the record, but instrumentally, one of the most lackluster. And it's one of many moments on this album where it does sound like the song is pretty decent, but the, the full potential of it isn't realized because of a very lackluster presentation. This is also an issue with the opening track, the closing track too. There's just so much on this album that is holding it back, it's, it's actually frustrating. Like the super rough and squawking rhythm guitars on the track Complications. Really the worst rhythm guitar on the entire LP, and not just because of the sour and horrid chord progression, but the tone is super thin, overly sharp, it doesn't really enhance the rhythm of the track that much. There were at least a handful of songs that I thought sounded pretty great from start to finish. Interpol 
doing what they do well. The song Flight of Fancy had a pretty fantastic driving groove. The guitars and bass felt very locked in. Solid drum beat too. Paul's vocals are captivating. It feels dark. It feels authoritative, sort of thrilling too. Uh, a rare moment of potent emotion on the album. The song Mountain Child is a pretty nice slow burner with a patient introduction. It slowly builds up with some dramatic bass and drums, and it's one of the few moments on this album where the band throws on these extra guitars, these extra sonic layers. It does get a little overwhelming sonically, but it's pretty enjoyable. The band's experimental desires on this record, in a way, fully realized. The tune at the core of this sonic chaos is pretty solid as well. Paul's vocals on the pre-chorus, when they kind of reach into that upper register and strain a bit, are pretty fantastic. The hook is one of the smoothest on the entire record. And the song Nisma as well, I thought had some super tight playing. The guitars, the drums, the bass, once again, super locked in on tempo. Doesn't feel like the band are playing it super loose for absolutely no reason at all. Which, I mean, there is certainly an appeal to. I have praised multiple records on here that are a little rough around the edges. Maybe they're a little amateurish. Maybe they're just kind of wild and out of control. That can be great. That can add a lot to an album. But if that was Interpol's intention with some of the tracks on this record, like you could have brought it so much further than where you did. I'm just having a hard time finding the appeal of this album because by the usual standards Interpol set on a record, this falls horribly short. It is messy at points it feels underwritten, the vocal performances are kind of off, the production is very washed out, but it's also kind of hard to see this album as a novelty or refreshing or experimental because not just in the grander scheme of things, but also within the scope of Interpol's very limited discography, this is not very adventurous. It just feels like a noisier and sloppier version of the band we've been listening to for all these years, and truth be told, I I could not wait for this album to be over. I'm feeling a strong four to a light five on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new OCs album, Smote Reverser. This is a brand new album from John Dwyer and the gang, OCs. The San Fran psych and garage rock outfit who has been on a pretty creative streak lately with a run of albums that have featured some of the band's best production and musical performances yet. Mutilator defeated at last, A Weird Exits, their previous full-length record, Orc. And now they are pretty much adding to this electrifying new direction with Smote Reverser, and there were quite a few reasons that I was psyched for this record. These past few records have marked a really exciting time in the OC's discography, where the band is taking their psych and garage roots and delivering unto us these punked out sometimes Krautrockian jams in these styles uh, that, that are pretty cutting edge with great performances and chemistry, solid and tight solos. The cover on this thing looks incredible. Uh, seems like some kind of interdimensional being or uh, a beast from the depths of hell is rising up and destroying the whole world. Looking forward to that. And one of the big teaser tracks to this record, Overthrown, kind of sounded like OCs going metal, but without losing touch with their psych and garage roots. The track seemed like it could be the next chapter in this sort of explosive leg of the band's discography. Overall, though, now that I've been able to hear the entire album, Smote, unfortunately, is not that 
wall-to-wall exciting next chapter in the band's discography, though I do think it is a solid addition to this latest string of albums. Overthrown, as great as the track is with its intense and speedy drumming, the really abrasive guitars and vocals which are just scorched with distortion, the wailing guitar leads too, the track is kind of an anomaly in the track list. The closest the band comes again to sounding this murderous and satanic is on the track and Enrique El Cobrador, which has very devilish lead vocals, some fuzzy bass, some expressive drum fills. It seems like the band are kind of pulling a page out of the Black Sabbath playbook and dipping it in LSD. It's kind of a fun take, but there are a bunch of tracks from the band's last album that blow this one out of the water in terms of character and heaviness and intensity, namely the song Animated Violence, whose metal appeals I think I appreciate a lot more in retrospect. I digress, though. The issue that I have with this album generally, a lot of tracks on it, is that they go pretty far, but do they go far enough? In comparison with some of OC's recent works, a lot of the material on Smoke Reverser is not nearly as risky, the performances are kind of mild, and some of the ideas here are a little ill-conceived. Like the track C, which is a pretty steamy, groovy, very nicely paced piece of psychedelic blues rock, with these cheeky falsetto vocals delivering these kind of creepy lyrics about creatures crawling in the morning light. There are some sweet solo passages. It's not a bad tune, but throughout the entire track, there are these really persistent field recordings of like a field at night where you just hear a lot of crickets chirping. I like the extra bit of texture it adds to some points in the song, but at the volume that it's at throughout the entire recording, I just don't see what it adds. Meanwhile, the track Sentient Una is a nice slow burner with chilling vocal harmonies, primal drums, and explosive organ passage. All of this is presented in a pretty linear fashion, but considering the amount of time the track takes to build all of this up, it's kind of an odd choice for an intro, as it's not exactly the most accurate tone setter for the entire record. It doesn't really feel like that grand of an entrance. It just feels like I've been thrown into a record that's already been playing for 15 minutes before I arrived. The track Last Piece has a lot of great things going for it. It's weepy fiddles, it's kind of downtrodden background vocals, but the song, the instrumentation, pretty much everything about this track is really faint, weirdly EQ'd and mixed, kind of buried. The only thing about it that's upfront and clear are the drums, which are oddly raw and don't feel like they have been treated all that carefully. I mean, I get the band typically embraces some lo-fi aesthetics in their recordings, but the way the instrumentation on this track has been balanced for the first leg just reads like I'm listening to a demo. But then there's a total shift in sound and style with this very intense Krautrockian jam for the entire second half of the track, which is great. It's actually one of the most exciting moments on the entire record, but it doesn't change the fact the track had a very rough start. Then there's the longest song, on the entire record, Anthemic Aggressor, which is very much a head-scratcher. It's 12 minutes in length and comes off as one of the album's most improvisational moments, too. The band gives themselves a lot of space to color with, but what do they do with it outside of some faintly glitched out, barely audible, constantly dipping in and out guitars with some really aimless noodling, too? It just kind of sounds like I'm listening to a... Uh, uh, a radio signal fade out as I'm driving away from it. The soloing does get tedious after a while, and the track 
really does not justify its length all that well outside of maybe throwing on some sour harmonies. There's a kind of climactic and intense finish which features more layers of instrumentation, something I wish there was a bit more of throughout the track. I do give it to the rhythm section on the track, though the steady bass, the fantastic drums on this cut are very much what holds the whole thing together. The song Flies Bump Against the Glass is one of those slow, groovy moments that uh, warrants a crowd of people kind of waving lighters in the air, but given the kind of occult tone of the keyboards on the track, maybe less lighters and more floor candles assembled into a pentagram. Either way, the track feels kind of like an endless introduction that never quite resolves and just sort of fizzles out at the end after almost five minutes of less than flattering guitar leads and soloing. Then there's the very mystical but uneventful closing track on this thing, Beat Quest, whose wah-wah-wah lead synth melodies really kind of bury a lot of what else is in the mix and is really kind of a blemish on the track. Please don't take my critiques of this album as being incredibly harsh, because in all honesty, there's very little material on this record that I would say is so bad that I wish to skip it. And there are at least several very great cuts on this record that I think stand out really well. Again, Overthrow, intro track is fantastic. Abysmal Urn, which features these really fiery, explosive, electrifying lead guitars. It's really rebellious, it's wild, it's got some solid verses too. Some lyrics about what seems like our troubled generation. The song Nailhouse Needle Boys has one of the best grooves on the entire record. I love the wailing harmonized guitar leads that sort of ascend as the track is propelling forward. The bluesy electric piano riffs on this cut are really nice too. And the song Moonbog is one of the most truly frightening ballads on this record and really of the band's past several. Overall, I just think Smote Reverser is okay. It's just a little hit or miss, not nearly as exciting as what the band has been doing for the past few years, and that's kind of it. Much of what has made the band's recent material so exciting does translate over onto this new LP, but with less compelling songs and solos and jams, less ambition, fewer risks. I'm not really sure what comes next for OCs after this album, but the band is always changing up the script, so regardless, there will be reason to uh, check out the, the new one. I'm feeling a strong six to a light seven on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Hermit and the Recluse album, Orpheus vs. The Sirens. This is the new debut album from the hip-hop duo, the Hermit and the Recluse, which you might think is, is a brand new duo that nobody's ever heard of yet, but it in fact features uh, two guys who have quite a bit of weight in the hip-hop underground. Producer Animos, who is maybe most notable for his frequent and close collaborations with Mr. Rock Marciano, and also Brownsville's own Ka, whose music I've covered on the channel a few times already. I highly recommend his album, The Night's Gambit. If you're unfamiliar with Ka, you should know that the dude has a totally idiosyncratic rap style. His verses have flow, but hit a very slow, relaxed pace, almost similar to that of spoken word. His delivery is pretty low-key, to say the least, so because he's not hitting listeners with these speedy runs of bars, he takes the time to write these really dark, poetic verses that you can really stew in and think over. A lot like a Pusha T, Ka is very much quality over quantity of the lyrics that you're hearing in any given song. But while Ka consistently brings coded lingo, smart wordplay, vivid imagery, 
Truth be told, it's not very hard-hitting, it's not very physical, because Ka is not an author of bangers, rather he uses hip-hop to create a theater-of-the-mind-like experience, where the grim criminal themes in his storytelling are presented in kind of a dramatic and noir fashion. And producer Animos is very well suited to fit this tone, fit Ka's style. Given his ability to support the supremely subdued Rock Marciano, working with a guy like Ka just seems like a natural fit. It's clear both parties have quite a bit in common artistically, and maybe even personally too, just given the pseudonym of both musicians on this record, The Hermit and The Recluse, basically interchangeable terms. And there is something supremely solitary isolating, and maybe even antisocial about the music that they make together on this album. There is a lyric on the album where Ka says there's purity in obscurity, which says a lot about his music's ethos, but with that also comes a helping of mythos on this album, with the clear nod to Greek mythology via Orpheus, as tidbits of his story from the Argonautica are presented throughout this album via samples of an adaptation, I'm not sure which one, that kind of segues the album from one track to another in an attempt to draw parallels between the musical mission of Orpheus himself and Animas and Ka as a duo in this collaboration, using music as a tool to charm and inspire and drown out the destructive sirens that figuratively, in this case, are causing sailors to crash their boats into the rocks. Given that this is a Ka album, of course this whole Greek mythology thing is much more than skin deep, as it runs through many of the lyrics on this record as well. As the participants in the Argonaut story, they're out a-questin' for the Golden Fleece, which Ka also names a song after, and that Golden Fleece is a symbol, a symbol for something that he gets into in the lyrics. Lonely streets not known for peace, never rest, forever quest, Golden Fleece, Golden Fleece, the Argonauts. I want compassion from the highest, food for the lowest, cures for the afflicted, rules for the homeless, direction for the misled, heat for the coldest, love for the lonely, peace for the soldiers. The instrumentals on this album, almost without exception, are beautiful, they're eerie, they set a wonderful tone for Ka's lyrics. I love the gorgeous and airy string samples throughout the track Sirens, the dramatic and cinematic funk rock passages on the track Fate, the chilling and experimental New Age ambience of the song Argo, the droney synthesizers and soaring psychedelic guitar leads on the cut Orpheus. Nearly everything on this album sounds like it was sampled out of like an exploitation film soundtrack in the 70s, but somehow warped, manipulated, adjusted, and embellished to sound <laughs> really depressing. Now, in the grander scheme of things, maybe this album isn't that much different than a lot of the material Ka has put out in the past, though I will say I do think this album surpasses Honor Killed the Samurai and his recent kind of underwhelming Dr. Yenlo project, and for a few different reasons. I mean, this album is super short, super tight at 10 tracks and 30 minutes. The Greek mythology themes that run throughout are pretty smart and captivating and make this record a very unique experience. Also, Ka I find to be lyrically sharper than ever, as there are countless quotables flowing throughout this entire album. Too many to name. Honestly, I would have to just read through the lyrics for the rest of this review, though I will try to read off of a couple that stood out to me. Left to Phil, dressed to kill, nothing I wore peaceful. Most of these fucks is ducks. Don't let them all geese you. Geese you. <laughs> I love it. I, I love this set of bars right here, but it's kind of a, a, a twister because of the internal rhymes. 
living livid, I ain't pivot when it was pivotal. Since natal held a stable and shit it was most critical. How I'm unique is if I speak it, I have visual, but careful because everything I say is admissible. And the third verse of the punishment of Sisyphus really to me is, is one of the strongest on the entire record and should put Ka in a position for anybody who cares about lyrics to be considered one of the best writers in the hip hop genre of this decade. Learned many lessons from women. The biggest was forgiveness and possibly generosity. Taught me giving is a privilege. Fought for respect. Had to be the villain of the village because the only ones chillin' was the ones willing to pillage. Armed for strong arm and too impatient to plan a heist and how you handle fights determine if you man or mice. But soon taught the same true sport. If you a fan of life, start to gather what you rather six feet or get hand a vice. I choose the op to excuse a lot. Just don't deceive me. Not at all spoiled if the hard-boiled never got over easy. Where it's clear it's never acceptable to turn to Jake's, I impress to you, become a vegetable, or learn the stakes. So there are a few lyrical tidbits from the record that I think are really great, but if you want to get that pure sense of drama and cautionary storytelling that is so potent on this album, you have to listen to the entire thing. You have to listen to a full track. Now, even though this album might not be the most groundbreaking thing in rap, most groundbreaking thing for Ka, it's still a pretty unique release. Citizen Cope's sung vocals, if I'm going to throw another critique out there on the track Hades, were also kind of awkward in my opinion. The instrumentals, while they do set a good dramatic tone and they have a great aesthetic to them, uh, I occasionally do wish they had a bit more progression or weren't quite so redundant. Mostly on the track Oedipus, whose horn loop is just really tight and really incessant and pretty loud too in comparison with Ka's voice, almost drowns him out. The beats on this thing that work the best are those that give Ka enough room to kind of work with the space around his voice, add some interesting overdubs or do some other weird reverby vocal experiments that add to the storytelling and the imagery of what he's saying. And again, even though Ka's rap style, it's pretty one-dimensional, it's not very versatile, you kind of see what you get and you know what to expect. I still love the fuck out of this record. I mean, the flow of the tracks on this thing is fantastic. I like the narrative. I like that Greek mythology. The lyricism is top tier. His delivery is pretty cold-blooded, and I do enjoy that. The album is pretty tight, too, as I stated before. It doesn't overstate its welcome. I mean, not only is this record uh, some of the best material Ka has dropped in a while, but I feel like this album might be an album that I recommend first to people who are new to this guy because it's such a, uh, such a fantastic record and why it's fantastic is so obvious on the surface level. It hits you with that really cool concept. The lyrics are clearly fantastic. Ka's style, while it may not be visceral, it certainly stand out. And the production marries so well with what he's doing too. I'm feeling a strong A to a light nine on this thing. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. Hey, everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And it is time for a track review, doing a bit of an inaugural return episode of this series, which I kind of stopped doing for a while, but now I think it, it, it might be fun to sort of do one every once in a while on this channel. 
I'm going to be taking on the brand new 21 Pilots single, My Blood. The duo has seen fit to drop several tracks so far from this upcoming full-length LP, Trench, which is dropping very soon. And uh, I've, I've made it no secret that I have personally either enjoyed or have been at least somewhat impressed by every single one of these new tracks to come out so far. I have not really been a 21 Pilots fan up until this point. Haven't really liked a lot of their stuff, have uh, thrown some pretty harsh critiques out there of their music in the past, and I don't know, this this next full-length LP, it seems like the duo are sounding more mature and thoughtful than ever, and are approaching these tracks with more tasteful instrumentation, and I'm going to hope that that continues to be the case on this new song over here. I'm going to give it a shot and uh, give you my full thoughts on it. Here we go. Okay. I mean, I I have my critiques of this, but along with everything else that 21 Pilots has been dropping so far from this forthcoming album, uh, I think this is pretty decent. I think it's an improvement. Um, I don't know how much shit I'm going to catch in the comments for that, for kind of enjoying another new 21 Pilots song, but I do legitimately think that the duo's music is getting more enjoyable. To get to the downsides of the track first, uh, I thought the intro was super tedious, maybe a little long-winded, could have used more instrumentation or something to kind of build the track up or just make it feel less tedious. I I get that they were trying to set a really dramatic and maybe a slightly dark tone before they hit the audience with the full fidelity of all the instrumentation and everything, but I I don't know if the intro really came off as moody as the duo intended or really achieved uh, uh, the, the vibe that they were shooting for. And I guess the other major critique I have of the track is is just the lyrics. Not that they're overtly terrible, but they sort of feed into this ongoing cliche in 21 Pilots music where they seem to be consciously speaking to a loneliness that they know is there in their audience. So they are trying to throw out this phraseology of, oh, you won't be alone. I'll be there to protect you. Da, 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 da. The duo has been exploring those, those, those ideas for a long time in their music. Uh, this idea of personally struggling and, uh, you know, either persevering through that or needing someone's help or aid or love to kind of get you through these tough times. And, um, very obviously this song is speaking to, uh, to that idea, to that trope. Uh, although I wouldn't say that I think, uh, it's doing it in all that interesting or refreshing of a way. It just kind of seems like they're, uh, returning once again to this idea in a somewhat underwhelming way. I do think there are some elements of the instrumental in the song that I think are a bit bland, but having said all that, I do think it does have a very solid hook. I love the instrumental for the most part. The very crispy drums are great. 
The fuzzy, grooving bass line is fantastic as well. The lead vocals aren't too bad. They transition from some very nicely sung cleans into the uh, rap verses that you typically pick up on a 21 Pilots song very nicely. It doesn't feel as disjointed or as tacky as some of the rap passages uh, do typically come off in a 21 Pilots song. Uh, The bridge was pretty solid, dropped the instrumentation out, built things back up to a somewhat climactic finish. And I also like the way the duo transitions into the very glitzy, glamorous, euphoric, and almost disco-inspired hook. It's almost like there's a little bit of Bee Gees influence here, or like some disco-inspired indie-tronic stuff from the 2000s when it comes to the chorus on this thing. Again, a little bland. The lyrics don't do a whole lot for me personally, but I do think it's a pretty solid, tasteful, mature track. There's not a whole lot about it that I found to be overly terrible, unbearable, or corny. I think it's a very well put together uh, pop tune with a kind of dark moody edge and a personal message. Uh, Not terrible by any stretch of the imagination. And it seems like 21 Pilots fans are taking to the duo's new material, but I wonder if this direction will go over as well as I don't know, the, the the sweeter, more summery, more playful and quirky and I guess a kind of clashing sweet sounds uh, that they have kind of made a name for themselves off of so far. I guess that remains to be seen. But all I can say for right now is that I'm continuing to enjoy the new direction. I don't think it's a bad direction. I'm continuing to look forward to this new album. I don't know at this point if I'm really thinking it's going to blow my mind. Most likely not, but I'm hearing progress here and I'm hearing improvement. So that's always something to uh, to celebrate. Rap is emo hip-hop's sensitive new wave. Over the past couple of years, I've noticed that there has been a growing flood of artists and also a demand for these artists in the rap community that uh, are really emotional. Guys like the late Little Peep and Tentacion. There's also Juice World, who is super hot right now and explores a lot of themes of relationships and sadness and heartbreak in his music. Also have to shout out Trippy Red for his new LP on which there are tracks where he is literally singing with these nasally, whiny, emo-style vocals over, like, just guitar tracks. Also want to shout out Goth Boy Click, and though I wouldn't necessarily connect these artists directly to this new flood of emo influence in hip-hop. I do see a similar sense of angst and insecurity and sensitivity in the music of artists like Brockhampton and Post Malone, too. And also on top of it, what the hell is Little Uzi's EXO tour life, if not an emo anthem, waiting to get out? I mean, have you heard that Fame on Fire cover? Now look, sadness, insecurity, angst, emotion in hip-hop in general is nothing new altogether. And the roots of what we're seeing today can be traced back to some emotional anomalies in the genre in the 80s and 90s, or to even larger artists who would hit it big in the 2000s like Drake and Kanye West. Also, shout out to Kid Cudi and Atmosphere because they were on that emotional shit too. And all those bad bands who put emo and rap music together 
on MySpace. But the thing about Drake and Kanye is that the way that they portrayed themselves and their music, the way that they kind of exposed their vulnerabilities and went a lot deeper emotionally than a lot of other of their contemporaries did, that's what made them unique. That's what made them stand out. These days, Kanye and Drake, they're kind of the teabags that got dropped into the water, soaked into the culture, and and changed the tone. The sensitivity and the emotional potency that they have put in their songs has almost become the standard thanks to this new wave of hyper-emotional rappers slash singers. Of course, along this evolutionary plane, I don't want to forget to mention other artists who were kind of precursors to this even newer wave, people like Young Lean and the Sad Boy crew, of course, Young Thug. And I've already made a video talking about how guys like Little Yachty are representative of hip-hop's punk phase at the moment, and other artists in the underground too, I would say Danny Brown, Death Grips, basically anybody over the past several years who has participated in this aggressive, hardcore, and sometimes industrial blend of hip-hop music. This voluntary breakdown of the genre's traditional standards, whether it be an instrumental standard, whether it be a lyrical or a flow standard. There have been numerous artists over the years who seem to have drawn a lot of attention to themselves by bringing the lyrical bar lower and lower and lower and lower, whether that be a Soldier Boy, a Little B, a Waka Flock of Flame, a Chief Keef, a Little Pump. And I think a part of this total breakdown of all the standards is also recognizing that there are emotional standards set in place too, not just technical ones. The artists who I mentioned early on in the video, I think are consciously or subconsciously realizing that and throwing out this need to adhere to these usually macho and stoic and super masculine themes that typically turn up in hip-hop lyrics. I'm not seeing an all-out abandonment of this stuff, though. I think it will be a while before that even happens. But it's clear that you do have a new young crop of artists and listeners who are exploring other emotional avenues, like a very young teenage angst. And truth be told, I do find it kind of refreshing, even if some of the music from the artists I mentioned early on I have found to be kind of lackluster, and I do wonder how long will it take for this trend, if it does rise to the top, to just become another self-centered cash cow like Pop Emo was about 10 or 15 years ago. Because a lot of this, while it is refreshing and new, can easily be boiled down to a very predictable formula, which one male rapper after another will have no problem copying and pasting over, even if the whole style is supposed to be based on supposedly authentic emotions. I'm kind of seeing inklings of that already, although uh, whatever great and refreshing albums do come out of this new trend, I wholeheartedly welcome and am looking forward to. And I think that's what I wanted to say. I just kind of wanted to give a nod to this growing sound and style that's obviously been going on for a little bit, but now it seems like its roots are in the ground a bit deeper and it's worth kind of putting a pin in, it's worth marking because it doesn't seem like it's, it's going anywhere anytime soon. It will be interesting to see what the results of this emotional awakening are, I guess. And I'm gonna leave it at that. And here we are with another letter from a fan. A very good question about fame and anonymity over here. And it comes from uh, Shun, Shun B. The question goes, Hi, Melon. I just wanted to know what is your opinion on anonymity in the music industry? Do you think that artists like Tentacion, Travis Scott, Kurt Cobain, etc., could have made it as far as they did had they left their identities in the dark and only allowed their music to speak for them, like acts such as Daft Punk. 
And do you think that new artists uh, could become successful in this social media-driven age while still keeping their identity anonymous? Good question, good question, good question. Though I, I do think you you pose a bit of a false comparison here, or maybe that your view of the situation is a little warped because uh, – promotion of music and iconography in music is, is so effective. Uh, let me kind of break this down here. So here's the thing. I I don't think it's really about whether or not an artist is anonymous because I I don't truly see, uh, Daft Punk or even MF doom as an example of a truly anonymous artist. I mean, if we do a little bit of internet digging and sleuthing, we can find out and know who they are. We know what they look like. And, uh, we, we know things about them. We know things about them. And on top of it, it's not like we are never seeing them. Sure. They're wearing a mask, but in a way I feel like what they've done is actually even more attractive than somebody who's just kind of letting their face out there because the the mask is an image. It's a sexy, cool, fun image. It's an, it's an icon. It's something that despite the fact that at this age, uh, the Daft Punk guys are just aging Frenchmen, you know, <laughs> but when they go to perform music, they're putting on the helmets. They have uh, this elaborate stage show. It looks amazing. It looks futuristic. Uh, again, there's a lot of iconography. There's a lot of iconography surrounding all of it. So I, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a purely anonymous thing. You know, what I see as a purely anonymous thing is you literally have no images of the artist. They don't wear a mask. They're not doing this other fucking thing. You know, it's literally just the music, and that's it. You don't know who they are. You don't know their name. No pictures of them. You have no information about them whatsoever, and. There are very few examples of artists who are successful who have done such a thing. At the very least, artists at least come up with some kind of placeholder to, to make up for the fact that they're not showing you their face. They, they have a, a, a mask. They have uh, an image of some sort that they have drawn up, you know, like gorillas or something. You know, when you go see a gorilla show where you think of gorillas, you're not thinking of, of Damon Albarn. You're not seeing an image of Damon Albarn. You're thinking of uh, all the members, the illustrated, animated members of the band Gorillaz. Um, so there are examples of, technically speaking, artists who are in the shadows. They're behind the scenes. Um, but still, uh, the the... the People like MF Doom, people like Daft Punk, they're still putting something forward. They're still put, giving you something to replace that need for a persona, for a character, for an image, for a person to be there for you to link that music to. And honestly, I don't know if it's as much a result of marketing as uh, much of it is a result of just a need for us to know who the person is or understand that there's a person behind it or understand who the person is behind it. Because, um, I guess, uh, music is a very communal thing and we want to connect to it on a personal level. And we almost want to connect to the person who's making it in a way, uh, that, that we need that there in, in some sense. But, um, still, you know, there are uh, examples of, 
music scenes, like I guess you could say uh, uh, some pockets of the death metal scene, um, uh, certain pockets and uh, uh, spans of time within the Norwegian black metal scene where, you know, you are talking about at least a a bit more anonymity and people being a a bit more shadowy and hidden away and, and obscured. Uh, I think back in the day, just general pre-internet, it was a lot harder to get this information. And even if, you know, you did have your face on a cover, if there was face paint or there was a mask, pure and truer anonymity was easier to, I guess, kind of maintain. But uh, uh, these days, uh, th- there aren't a whole lot of artists out there that I see that are truly like in the shadows and that's it. You never hear from them. You never see them. You don't even see them live. You don't see pictures of them and they don't put out an image of themselves instead. Uh, because again, I, I what I see Daft Punk doing and what I see MF Doom doing, I, I think that's still, you know, putting a face out there. Maybe not your face, you know, but I, I still think in a way you're still connecting to the audience in the same way uh, that a Travis Scott or a Kurt Cobain or an XXX Tentacion does or did. Because, you know, here's the thing at the end of the day. While X and Travis and Kurt uh, may have their faces out there and people relate to them and they relate to the messages in their music and they may relate to the things that they say in interviews, um, still, w- when you're relating to something that uh, X may have said, if you're a big X fan or whatever. Um, really, at the end of the day, what you're what you're connecting to is just a conjured image of who that person is in your head. You could listen to every single X song front to back, and listen to and read every single interview and, and vlog that he's ever done. But that does still not give you a front-to-back understanding of who that person is. That is an interview, that is PR, that is a conjured scenario, that is not 100% real or authentic for everybody and anybody because, you know, mainstream and media interviews are typically not a, a very real or organic scenario to begin with. Uh, sure, you know, people like Travis and Kurt have said a lot of very authentic and, and interesting and uh, uh, sort of against the grain things uh, when they've spoken in public. But that doesn't give you 100% deep understanding of who that person is and what their flaws are. I mean, people went for years without fully understanding or comprehending just how bad uh, Kurt's substance abuse problems were until it was too late. You know, and, and that's the, the tragedy with a lot of artists who have befallen uh, fates similar to Kurt Cobain. You know, the, we even people close to uh, uh, Chester and Lincoln Park, you know, they obviously didn't see coming what happened. Uh, so even sometimes when you're close to a person, somebody who's in your group or, you know, in your personal life, uh, you, you may not understand the things that kind of drive them to do the super dangerous stuff or things that uh, make them take their lives into their hands. And if these people who are close to them, you know, they're just a few shades away. They see them every day. They work with them personally. If if these people don't have uh, a full grip or understanding of, of what this individual might be going through, what hope do you have as somebody who's just kind of peering at this person through, you know, really just in a way the crystal ball of the internet and just watching media featuring them and just kind of consuming their songs and stuff. So, 
in a way, I, I still think that X and Travis and Kurt and everybody else who is kind of putting their face out there, you know who they are. Uh, still, in a way, it's a mask. It's still a mask. That's their popularity persona. That's their music persona. That's the image that they want to put out there uh, in order to get people to get into their music and sort of buy into the image and the aesthetic of it. And, um, you know, again, I, I think Daft Punk and MF Doom are very much doing the same thing, but in a, in a more creative fashion. Uh, and again, to get to the heart of your question here, the, the amount of artists out there that don't give you any persona, no name, no image whatsoever, not even a made up one, uh, the amount of artists who are doing that, very few and far between, and of those artists, not many of them are totally successful, you know? Um, even bands like Ghost, you know, even bands like uh, The Residents, you know, sure, anonymous in a sense, uh, but they're still giving you an image. They're still giving you something, you know, and, and that at the end of the day, I think is, is really what matters from a marketing standpoint when it comes to popular music. You know, you need an image, you need a look, you need a something, you need uh, some kind of character, whether it's you or whether it's some shit you've made up. Uh, for fans and audience members to connect to, you know, and uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you very much for writing in this question. I thought it was pretty thoughtful and, you know, led to uh, an interesting opportunity to think, think over why exactly we gravitate to, uh, to art and media. And that has been another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank all of you for listening. I'm Anthony Fantano, your host. This thing has been produced and assembled by Jonah Shout out to him. If you want to follow us over on social media, hit us up, A Fantano over on Instagram, The Needle Drop on Twitter, The Needle Drop on Facebook. Of course, we're over at TheNeedleDrop.com as well, YouTube.com slash TheNeedleDrop and YouTube.com slash Fantano. Subscribe to those channels if you want to keep a little bit more up to date with the content, the reviews, the rants, the think pieces that we are dropping every week, day in and day out, as they do not all make it into the podcast, and we will see you in the next episode. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop, podcast forever. <laughs>